0: And sports staff to, to clear the room stand up and walk now
1: hello and welcome to the watch my name is chris ryan i am an editor at the ringer.com and joining me on the other line he thought bo katan was a uk grime mc it's andy greenwald
0: wow that is micro targeted i boom, love it
1: boom, boom.
0: <laughs> wow selecta
1: Let's do it. What's going on, man? It's Monday. We have a stacked show today. We're going to talk a little bit about the most recent episode of The Mandalorian. We have our interview with the Queen's Gambit star, Anya Taylor-Joy, who was so nice to talk to us for about half an hour about her work as Beth Harmon on that show that we adored so much. And then we have the first of my three uh, episodes of recaps, with Amanda Dobbins uh, covering the crown season four. So we're going to do episodes one through three today. I can't wait to talk to Amanda about what is a st- stunning episode of uh, season of the crown
0: at the end of your series with Amanda. Can I come on as a diehard anti-royalist and
1: yeah, yeah I definitely. can do a,
0: I'll do a Scottish accent the whole time. Oh, you're going to be like, and
1: I want to <laughs> stop I, I, that I'll, woman in the I'll, hat. Yeah, right. I, I, I will. <laughs> I'll do it.
0: I'll speak up for the trade unionists. Okay.
1: We'll get into the episode. We'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy, and right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan, Only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
2: This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So, when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com.
1: All right, man. What is up Monday? Andy, when did you watch The Mandalorian this weekend? So uh, you kept asking me. You like had your finger on the pulse. because this is a huge, this is a big episode for us because I think- It's
0: really big, yeah. I
1: think that short of Carl Weathers' return, which I think I am going to save Mando voice for whenever that may or may not happen. Fair. Having a a beloved character. I mean, this was Super Bowl for Clone Wars fans, right?
0: <laughs> that's what you're talking about? So, okay. We'll and then talk she about comes up character. to the
1: Mandalorian yeah. is like, children of the Watch. Yes, that's she was the big doing moment. Free advertising for this podcast.
0: If you want to talk about the deep, deep Star Wars fandom expanded universe permutations and repercussions, I'm sure there are other podcasts for you. If you want to talk about the part where they said the name of our show on the show, that's what I'm here for. Yes. That was huge. The, and, and frankly, we're kind of riding a moment because last week I got an email about uh, screeners being available for a new BBC show called The Watch. Yeah, Uh yeah. Unclear what the podcast accompaniment of that show will be called. We'll have to you know consider that at some point. But once again, Hollywood just slavishly begging for our approval and engagement.
1: Damon Lindelof does a show called Watchmen. Yeah. Which is obviously, was obviously inspired by us, not Alan mm-hmm, Wars comic. Mm-hmm. Bo Katan says, is it Bo Katan or Katan? Am I pronouncing, the, I, am I doing it the proper Star Wars pronunciation? It,
0: it, it's pronounced like the co star of the night at the Roxbury. It's Katan. <laughs> <laughs> They're related.
1: It's, yeah. He is, it's, he was born on Mandalore as well. Um, he was born
0: on, wait, Chris. <laughs> he was born on Mangalorean.
1: <laughs> I'm done. I'm done here. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like that was that was an amazing moment. But the, I think this is seemed you, you were pretty high on last week's episode mm-hmm. with the snow spiders and like just a lot of a lot of frog Yoda interplay, a lot, uh, a lot
0: of row row eating.
1: I get the feeling like the consensus is that this was the banger so far this season, and that is among the best episodes that the Mandalorian has done.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think the show has really found itself. Uh, dare I say it's found its sea legs. For a number of reasons. And one of the reasons why I'm excited that all the different components of Mandalorian fandom seem to be on the same page now is because this episode succeeded in all the quadrants we were laying out last week for the show to be successful, that it's trying to manage. And it did so in, in a very brisk, entertaining 30-some minutes, right? 30, clearly. It was, was like
1: 32 minutes it, when you cut out the recaps and the credits.
0: Extremely extremely efficient and also really good look for your boy who had the misfortune of telling his wife that we had to watch an episode of the mandalorian before we could get back into that eric romer movie on criterion we had fired up the night before so once i was like it's under 40 all was well all was well in the high seas but clearly this was significant to people who are very into the you know mainstreamization canonization of beloved storylines and characters from the cartoons or from the expanded universe etc yeah. etc but i really loved this episode because it's doing the thing that i most want out of the show that i think our friend sean fantasy was tweeting about a little too o- over the weekend after he watched the episode which is what a fun exploration of an enormous expansive fictional universe you know in in a way week to week and this might not be the most popular opinion and it 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 probably. W- you know, if you're working at Bad Robot and you're listening on your Sonos, um, you should not be in the office because things are not safe to be in offices right now. But for the purposes of this joke, let me go with it. Mute. Turn it down. Put on your headphones. Week to week, the show is just doing donuts on JJ's lawn. You mm-hmm. know, obviously, it's a different circumstance. It's incredibly hard to do these giant movies, as we learned, versus the TV show. But the thing about one of the many things that I thought was so bad about that last Rise of of Skywalker movie was that it was like, okay, now we're going to go to a place with big waves and now we're going to go to this planet where Carrie Russell lives and we're just going to show you so many things because we can. This episode was like, okay, let's go to a fish planet. Now what? Okay, so we're going to invent a chowder restaurant with <laughs> a and a like a, a i would it's not self-service it's just this ridiculous like hose chowder hose which i think Real, would do uh, very well
1: marseille uh, in the early 70s vibes from is that yeah. trask that they went to
0: really really well said <laughs> yeah um but also all the like the ships and the, the the crane that lifts it and all the details um were fun you know mm-hmm. it was it was world building in the best possible way it didn't feel like it didn't feel like a play set was being pre-designed to sell to our kids at Christmas. It was just like, we can do this with our technology and we're going to take you someplace new. And then on top of it, they built in this larger, um, serialized story and fissures in the Mandalorian cultists and this dark saber.
1: You know, yeah. Gideon's ear. It's all, ear, it's all Weller, connected. Bosch is, is doing, doing suicide runs, with
0: just doing stuff. Bosch things. But, all of it is in concert. It, 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 at no point did I feel left out because I didn't particularly understand what Katie Sackoff was talking about. It didn't really matter enough, and I think that's a sign of a really well executed show.
1: Yeah, uh, shout out to Bryce Dallas Howard. I thought this episode looked she, dope. And, she directed it. That was uh, great. Yeah, she directed it. That shot of the um, the Mandalorians taking off from the barge as they explo- as they blow it up was really sick. Um, I love great shots. You know, uh, your shots th- guy. And I thought she handled like all the the heist elements of it and like the, the sort of getting to the different levels of the of the spaceship that they were trying to find the cargo it was really well done. Like it just basically looked like the dirty dozen kind of. It was really cool. If I had any complaints to make, it was just that this is now the second or third episode in a row where essentially it's the same uh, bones of a plot, which is fine yeah. because this is a television show and it's cool if they want to do Mission of the Week for half of the season and then get into the more deeply serialized stuff, that's fine. But just him going up to somebody and saying, I hear you have the answer to a question that I have, and that person being saying, yes, I I do, but first, you're going to do this for me, I, I, I think is a little bit like, si- not silly, but like repetitive at this point.
0: It's a video game. I mean, that is the logic. Right. Maybe of, that's what like, I'm
1: reacting to. Role playing games. Yeah.
0: I don't mind it um, as long as they maintain this spirit of brevity mm-hmm. and also of visual wit. Like, I cannot stress this enough. It's not just the chowder or the don't play with your food moment. Yeah, um, or I know the, you're hungry
1: when, when he sees, them, when he sees, when the, he sees ex- the frogs reuniting. The, and-
0: the, 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 the passage through the ship towards Bosch was just really expertly paced. Mm-hmm. But for me, the, 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 the best moment came earlier, which is when they're having the bumpy landing and we establish the Admiral Akbar type octopus dude uh, watching them, and he's like, "We're going to make it," and then they just fully land in the ocean. Mm-hmm. That's a legit LOL, first of yeah. all. But it's just there's a spirit of playfulness and fun that is now, I think, this you know, almost halfway through the second season, that is now really uh, attaining kind of a consistency, right? I, I I keep referring back to that Bill Burr episode, which wasn't bad per se. But if you compared the storytelling in that episode to this one, this episode was so much better, even though it was once again, let's just do one mission and then I'll help you. And the mission involves running through a ship. But yeah, you I know, just thought the storytelling was so much clearer.
1: So I, I, I've i seen a lot of people talking about how as the Mandalorian, Sean said this, I mean, like as the, the the series goes on, you just realize how perfectly it seems to capture the dreams of Star Wars that you had as a child. That the full promise of the of the universe that it is. I kind of almost feel like that sense of humor that you're talking about, and that visual sense of humor that you're Mm -hmm. talking about owes a lot to Indiana Jones. Um, it Mm -hmm. it makes me it has that kind of wry sensibility. The violence is contained within that kind of, there's a little bit of blood. You know, somebody might get impaled, but it's not like gory. You know, we're not talking about dead of thieves here. And there is something about the acquisition of sacred items driving the story that seems to feel almost more Raiders than it does Star Wars.
0: And it also correctly, I think, handles that balance that has been such a struggle in major blockbuster franchise entertainment, which is say, you can tell me all you want that the most important things to be tracking are the ascension of the rightful heir to Mandalore thanks to a black saber that mm-hmm. has fallen into whoever's hands. Sure. Fine. Great. But you tell me that after I've come to care about this particular Mandalorian and his relationship with a baby Yoda, then I'm on board.
1: Right. If that's the first thing you're told, and that's the mistake a lot of the Star Wars movies have made, is like you get 15 minutes with Felicity Jones, and then there's like this huge download about all the stuff that you're supposed to understand and care about before they go planet hopping to find her dad, before they do this, before they do that. Uh,
0: I mean, Rise of Skywalker in its first 20 minutes has to or attempts to undo everything that Ryan Johnson's movie did, basically, and also tries to convince us that these characters who are apart for the entire second movie are actually the best of friends. And thus, we should be deeply invested in how they behave. And then it's just let's go find the rabbit's foot or let's go find the MacGuffin to get us to the next MacGuffin. And this, the Mandalorian, even though it could get away with that style of storytelling, I think. Better because they have more space to do it in it's just been so smart about not leading with that, and so I think that's one of the reasons why it's engendered such goodwill from everyone, even if people are haven't been able to put their finger exactly on why it is that it's such an enjoyable time
1: do you wish that this I think I've mentioned this a couple of times and i and I actually don't think that this is that an interesting of a question, but sometimes I do wish that right. we all watch this at the same moment I think that's why I ask you like when did you watch it this yeah. weekend because there's like the light not annoyance, but there is like the reality of like if it's Friday afternoon and you haven't watched it yet, you will start to see mentions of it on Twitter. So that right. and that's just a product of of whatever. But it really does feel like it would be cool for everybody to get a chance to watch this together in some capacity. I guess the weekend is when it's on and people just kind of yeah. catch up. But it, it, it that that occurred to me, especially since this reveal obviously had a lot to. You know, a lot meant a lot to huge Star Wars fans, and also just in general, I think it would be kind of fun.
0: That's what I wanted to ask you because Chris, you're deep in those uh, Lucasfilm Reddit boards, bro. Like I, you-
1: I I gotta tell you, I had no idea what she was talking about. Like, I mean, like there's there's a limit to my understanding of this stuff, and I think, I think it's actually like a really good illustration of hard versus soft fandom, right. and your awareness of that stuff. And I was just like. I like broadly have an idea of what the Clone Wars was about, but this is the level of stuff where I'm just like, you you, just get me back to Baby Yoda.
0: But this is also why the show is just pitched so well. And I I assume will be the the blueprint for um, Disney's Star Wars television universe going forward. And it's, so, it's just so smart because the assumption of power of a person we've never seen before, the majority of us who haven't watched the cartoon have right. never seen before, um, to a planet we've never been to based on codes and armors that we don't really understand, or maybe even care about if we're being honest, doesn't matter as much as the moment when our lead character realizes that maybe he's been in the wrong line the whole time. Sure. Right. A crisis of conscience or of faith in a person we care about is interesting. You know, um, beyond that, like, it's just, if you'll forgive me, it's just, it's like an episode of The Crown, right? Like who's gonna who's who's gonna get the throne?
1: Well, we know that right? answer.
0: Who's gonna? <laughs> it doesn't change midway through. No, just one no, one person. They, on
1: they don't deviate too much. Can Can I
0: also say though? Though I am not a member of the the hard fandom that you described. Sure. I did catch a one particular name drop that suggests the arrival next week of a a good friend. Yeah. Of this podcast. Yeah. Um, I was wondering I if you meant to that. I can neither confirm nor deny because why are, casting why we, is.
1: So we're, we're, we're still pretending like that's not going to happen officially.
0: So, what Chris is referring to is with no confirmations or denials. I'm just, you know, what we do here is we report internet scuttlebutt. You decide. You know what okay. I mean? We are, this we, is we not don't put wo- our,
1: these are this isn't a woge bomb.
0: No, we do not put our thumb on the scales. You know what I mean? This is not us calling Arizona um, prematurely even though, like with Arizona, I think this is going to turn out to be right. Briarpatch star Rosario Dawson has been rumored to be playing the part of Ahsoka Tano, who is a big fave yeah, on the boards. major deal. Um, and a Jedi whom the internet cast with Rosario years ago. I have no comments. I have seen no photos.
1: But it would be pretty crazy if you had.
0: That would be weird, right? Yeah. But seems like she's coming. Someone's coming, and that's pretty cool
1: couple more follow-ups. Did you catch feelings when the frogs were reunited?
0: I loved it. You know, look, you know know that...
1: Were you, like, emotional? Um, I... You're watching with your wife. Did your wife say, you never look at me that way?
0: Oh, no. When I say, (laughs) watching with my wife, she was not looking at the screen at any point. (laughs) And I am so thirsty. If I ever see, like, a particularly adorable baby Yoda moment. I am not above like stealthily hitting the back 10 seconds button and being like, Oh, look at that to right. see if maybe she will be interested in the show so far. No. So she uh, said she's doing the crossword puzzle. She's I basically, it out.
1: I watch it and then I take note of the baby Yoda moments, then bring my laptop <laughs> to my wife and say, here are the baby Yoda moments, which she can also you, just read about like in gift form. You know,
0: you are a meme Lord. You're making them yourself. Um, I, I really liked it. Like, I am a fan of this show's deep commitment to puppetry. You know, I I, I think that there's something very, very old-fashioned and very sweet and appealing that it, not only that it's interested in emotional storytelling such as it is, but that it really gives it over to puppets or people in costumes. I mean, that is what Star Wars was way before CGI stuff, way before we started (laughs) taking all this stuff seriously. So... I really, yeah, I liked it.
1: Did you th- I this episode it. make you want some chowder?
0: Um, it made me want to adopt some salamanders. How do I mean that's the other thing, by the way, that I love about sci-fi in general when it gets it right? Like I love that the quote unquote are normal people on the show, right? The in this case the 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 Mandalorians, like once they take their helmets off, they eat living cephalopods like the rest of us. You know right. what I mean? Right. Like that that's just how we get it done. I really, I admire that. And also I think that there's, I know that you and I bemoan often the lack of Tony Bourdain in our lives and our culture and on our screens, certainly. That, that
1: place did seem like a place Tony Bourdain would do, Anthony Bourdain would do a parts unknown about. That's what I'm saying. There is
0: at no point, and obviously the Mandalorian's parenting style is uh, not helicoptery. You know what I mean? He He's definitely not overly protective of Baby Yoda. But one thing I like is that he's just like, if the kid has an adventurous palate, I'm going to support it. At no point is he like, should I keep the pediatrician's emergency number on call? What if he gets a tummy ache? You know what I mean? He's just like, you want to eat the squid, you eat the squid.
1: You you can kind of see him walking down the dock being like, Trask is a worker planet, a port city. You know, like.
0: (laughs) For the real, real, real Bourdain heads, you will know what I mean when I say he would be wearing his thickest sweater in this episode. For sure. He would be wearing that thick triple wool sweater that he bought in the Scotland episode as he walked down the docks and uh, yeah, I, I loved it. So, what football team, Chris, did those mean doc working squid face people? What do they support? Are they Marseille fans? Do you think? Like, what is their? Oh yeah,
1: yeah, they would be. They would be a Marseille fans.
0: Like, do you think someone should have a Ribery jersey like in the background? <laughs> like, is that is that the vibe? Yeah. I listen free idea to our friends at Disney Plus. You, you make a five minute like uh, you know Lonely Planet slash Parts Unknown guide to each place this show goes and you, you tack it on as an extra. I
1: can't believe we'll you just it. gave Chapek that money.
0: I'm worried about him. The parks haven't opened yet. They're hemorrhaging.
1: Um. So Andy, did you want to talk a little bit about Undoing before we get to Anya? Uh,
0: well, I think that we should let people know we are going to be talking about the show at more length next week. We mm-hmm. will even have a special guest joining us, the one that we're very excited about, um, to talk about the show. So we won't focus too much on this fourth episode Other than
1: focus on 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 young Henry staring through the window like Damien from the Omen.
0: (laughs) I mean, how has your Uh, I guess let me say it this way. We are both fully watching the show. We are involved in the show. We are watching it and we are enjoying it.
1: (laughs) Involved in it makes it sound like we're in the public defender's office. (laughs) I just want
0: (laughs) I want Grace to buy me a gristly steak somewhere at the Upper East Side to talk about talk about the case. Do you, I also my enjoyment hasn't dimmed, but I also have never for a moment wavered from the fact that you are right about who did it and where we're headed. And has your enjoyment of the show dimmed because of that? Are you still finding a lot to like at the margins? And if you aren't, I have one thing to suggest that might bring i that might we could all it unite. A, it over hasn't dimmed
1: at all. I am also allowing for the uh, the fifteen percent chance that that is the because they are laying it on a little thick with Henry's right looks through the windows and his, his like vibe where he was like, I said, I'm sorry. You know, like just like a little bit of, I do think that there is a 15% possibility that there is like a double twist Mm. that it's it, that there is a Henry involvement that then twists and pulls in a couple of other major characters. I, I understand the need to have like B characters who just call to check in But Lily Rabe's character seems like absurdly interested in all of this. And if it's just to have a situation where Grace can talk to someone or Donald Sutherland can talk to someone at the school as he's entering Reardon, that's Mm. I totally understand that. But I kind of wonder whether or not Lily Rabe's previous involvement in Hugh Grant's character's uh, dismissal from the hospital Mm -hmm. suggests like a larger thing going on. The other thing that I think is worth noting... Is just, and a couple of people asked this on, um, I think our Facebook group and and hit me up on uh, on Twitter about it. Was like, are we really supposed to trust Grace's POV? And mm. the amount of times when confronted with stressful information, like the painting or mm-hmm. what have you, especially when she's being interrogated by the police, her eyes, her pupils dilate. She gets obviously very overwhelmed. She seems to have these almost blackout walks that she takes. Mm. That she doesn't seem to remember, like she's so she just goes out in the middle of the night and like winds up in the park in the like rather late morning, I would imagine, when the kids are there, and then collapses. That's so true. there, she can have fugue states. It just seems like there's a couple of different other things happening, but Henry is still the clubhouse leader as the murderer.
0: I wanted to say because I, I I imagine there are people listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, no more Bad Robot employees. I, I apologize to Daniel Leck and the rest of the Spotify team for just cutting off that entire uh, revenue stream as, as harshly as I did. But if you are listening to this right now and we're talking about the HBO series Undoing and maybe you watch The Mandalorian and you think I'm just tap dancing until we get to our Anya Taylor-Joy interview, let me just suggest that in this construction, if you're not watching The Undoing, you are like Chris's wife and waiting for just just the pure hit of goodness from the show. And if that's the case, just Google Donald Sutherland episode for the undoing, because it is a boss level performance by a guy well in his 80s. And I mean, I just didn't realize how much I needed Donald Sutherland saying the word cocksucker. You know what I mean? Like he he says it in a I, really I don't unique think we way. We
1: usually say that word on this podcast, but I think this is a special occasion.
0: Um, Kaya, could you take the audio from The Undoing and just drop it into my mouth so I never say it, but I have the ability to speak no, like Donald I, Sutherland?
1: I, I, I can actually like just replicate it for you right now, which is Donald wow. Sutherland is giving an excellent performance, and I, yeah. I believe he is Canadian. Is he not?
0: Yes. Well, no one in the show is American. But right. I, that, there was clearly some sort of union issue with that.
1: But you would never know from watching this or, or, or many of Donald Sutherland's other mm-hmm. wonderful performances, especially in mm-hmm. this twilight of his career. But he, you know, he's he's talking to this Dalton principal, like Reardon, which mm-hmm. is like a stand-in for a Dalton-type school, and he says the word cocksucker, but he mm-hmm. says it coke sucker. He does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he does. Is he talking about the Koch Brothers? Like I, I love it.
1: Yeah, that is true. Maybe that was what he was referring to.
0: Last thing, in the expanded undoing universe, during the pandemic, which you know it hit New York quite quite hard in the beginning. Where is Donald Sutherland taking his unplanned meetings? Like, generally, he can be found just sitting in a gallery at the Met, yeah. uh, untroubled, unhurried, staring at large size canvases.
1: And then having people come meet him there. They come to yeah, him because yeah, they
0: yeah. know he's going to be there. That is, I mean, that is power. That, I, I just kind of can't see that happening, a dining al fresco. You know what I mean? Like, what, what would the equivalent be? during this time in American history, and I worry about that.
1: Where yeah, would he I mean, sit? I guess he's just taking all his meetings in the park. Or on Zoom. Yeah. Maybe maybe, maybe, uh, maybe he's a big Zoom guy. He's, he's looking like, at paintings on like Zoom. He's like sunk like $4 million into this case already. Like, I can't imagine Haley Fitzgerald is cheap.
0: No, he, d- he definitely does not seem troubled by uh, his expenditures here. So maybe that's something <laughs> to watch. All right, so we will talk more on doing next week with a very special guest that we're excited about. But since yeah. we're speaking about special guests... Let's not let's not delay this anymore.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to say the one thing that I don't think I mm. had an understanding of was until yeah. Sunday late afternoon, I was watching the probably the best NFL game of the season, which was uh, Cardinals-Bills. And in like the second or third quarter, Charles Davis, who was doing color commentary, just did an entire segment on Kyler Murray as the Queen's Gambit. And it didn't really make any sense. It was just like a chessboard. And then after the segment... Charles, Charles Davis is just like, Queen's Gambit! I am watching that! <laughs> mm-hmm. This show has been number one on Netflix for yep. close to a month, I'm going to say, based on my own observations. And is maybe their most, I would say, significant hit that they have had this year i mean i guess like there have been other things that have done very well for netflix and i am over- sure and maybe i would say the most significant watch show that has, that has struck i mean like you would have to imagine that this is doing like pretty outrageous numbers for it to have held that spot
0: and i think it's doing it around the world i mean i think it's this is this is netflix's dream outcome right where it is a instant hit but then it is also an exponential hit because mm-hmm. It does seem like it is just growing and growing. And as we talk about with Annie at the beginning of our conversation, it's like a four quadrant show where it is the thing that you can talk uh, about with your friends who are snobs, with your parents, with your colleagues. Everybody likes this show for different reasons. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it was, we should set the scene. When we spoke to Annie last week, uh, it was early sunny morning here in California and she was in what appeared to be Anne Rice's like uh <laughs> panic room in Belfast yeah. where she's filming the new Robert Eggers film uh, the, Northman. the Northman right but she could have been more generous with her time more delightful and so wildly creatively turned on by this project and connected to it from Soup to nuts, and that was really fun to talk to her about. And it even prompted me to um, confess some things uh, later in our conversation
1: <laughs> yeah, about your ability to handle horror. All right, so we'll get into our Anya Taylor Joy conversation, and then after that, me and Amanda talked about the first three episodes of season four of The Crown, and we'll continue to do that for on Thursday show and then next Monday show. On Thursday, we'll talk about industry and mm, sure a couple of other things. Uh, until then, Andy, it was great to see you. Oh, hey. Great job, Baranskis. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan Only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
2: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is
1: there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America
3: and a member FDSE.
1: Andy and I are so excited to be joined by Anya Taylor-Joy, who plays Beth Harmon in one of our favorite shows of the year, Queen's Gambit, on Netflix. Anya, thank you so much for calling in from, from Northern Ireland, right?
4: uh, thank you so much for having me. That's so I'm so glad you guys have enjoyed it.
1: Oh yeah, it's been. I think actually one of the coolest things about it is that it seems like a show that both has been like so critically acclaimed, but incredibly popular with people. I don't know what to trust about like the Netflix top ten and all the, like the the hidden statistics that they have, but people definitely seem to be watching it. And it anecdotally, it seems like I've gotten messages from like my older boss, my mom, but also like younger people in my life who it seems to have like a really wide base of, of fans.
4: It's mind blowing to me. I mean, it's, it's obviously so beautiful and very overwhelming, but I've never been part of something that has such a large reach. You know, I get messages saying my eight year old grandparents have never binged a show and they're obsessed <laughs> and they like, they finished it and they're starting to learn how to play chess and Yeah, it's it's wild. But I am very grateful that a story about good people made by good people that like treated each other kindly and with respect that it's doing so well. It it feels like a a win for the good folks.
0: Couldn't agree more. And just to to piggyback on Chris's point, um, my 81 year old father checked in two episodes (laughs) in to say that he's enjoying it very much. And then his other comment was, seems she's a druggie. (laughs) so i had i had no notes it seems like he's
4: wrong
1: there sir yeah he says that about me too so it's okay yeah Yeah.
0: that's true he listens to our podcast and comes away with the same result so the show is just absolutely wonderful it's been the greatest surprise of the year so far because we certainly didn't see it coming uh and it's been wonderful to enjoy it and to see the reaction but my first question for you is basically When you take the whole thing in, which we have done and we've talked about all seven episodes on the podcast, and see just absolutely how overwhelmingly consistent in vision it is, from your performance to everyone else in the cast to the production design to the costumes, uh, Scott's incredible direction. All of that is so apparent when you watch the finished product. But I'm wondering if you could take us back to the early days when it must have arrived in your inbox as a project about chess. And how did Scott or whomever else was involved in the early stages of getting you involved weave the picture for you of what this could and should be?
4: Well, I was working on I I've made a habit the last five years of my entire career in working back to back. So I heard that Scott Frank wanted to meet with me about a project that had no script, but that there was a book. (laughs) I was like, okay, great. I can do this. I'll just read the book and then I'll go meet him and we'll see how we feel about it. I inhaled the book. Like it was just, it was such from the second I opened it, I was so in the world. I understood her so well. And I do not run. Like I am not somebody that runs places. And I physically ran to my meeting with Scott Frank. I was so overwhelmed and excited. And when I came into the restaurant, I didn't say hello. I just like screamed at him and said, it's not all about chess and she has to have red hair. (laughs) It's not all about chess. And I, yeah, you're right. She does have to have red hair. Sit down. Let's talk about it. Like from the second that we met, we just had the same vision for it. And then as I got to meet Daniel Parker and Gabrielle Binder and just Uli, you know, everybody had this idea we all just like clicked into this same stream of consciousness almost and um and everyone was so kind and truly collaborative like in a way where I think sometimes people are you know rightfully very secure in their jobs and they're like you're an actor you have no place coming into this but everyone was so welcoming of my ideas for Beth and it yeah from the beginning it felt like we were all making the same show.
1: I was curious, you mentioned doing stuff back to back, and I think, you know, I know that you were doing, what was it, like Emma, and then the Edgar Wright movie, and then this, just like one after another. Yeah. So this is probably a uh, high concept and wrong, but does working back to back on projects like that force you to almost do things more intuitively, a la Beth? You know, when she's playing and have that kind of you almost like jump into something rather than really like you're you're like making a pros and cons list and you're taking six months off and you're traveling and then you're thinking about what you want to do next. But this almost feels like you're just diving into projects. Is is that how you like to work? And did you see that in Beth?
4: I mean, you're spot on, but I've I've never really I tried to be a different kind of actor at the beginning. Like when I first, when I was working on my first movie, we all lived in this little motel and I would go up to people and say, when you say you're going off to work on something, what do you do? Like, what are you doing in your room? What is this? This? How do you work? But I've always been an intuitive performer. That's the way that I feel best. It's whatever comes up first for me is usually the right response, or at least for me, it's the right response. But with Beth in particular, I'd never had a year where I knew what I would be doing every single day. Like it was Emma, day off, Edgar Wright, day off, Beth. Mm. And by the time I arrived in Berlin, like I just, I knew I had no energy to create a shield between this is how you are doing today. And this is how the character is doing today. So I I could never describe myself as a method actor because I like to joke around too much, but it was very difficult to understand what were Beth's emotions and what were mine, if that makes sense. It
0: it does, and I I wonder also, I I don't know how, um, how Queen's Gambit was shot. I know you shot in beautiful locations. Uh, if it was mostly chronological or not. But one of the challenges I imagine in this performance is tracking Beth's development and also her physicality, which changes so much from when you arrive on the scene and you know, to take over the role essentially in episode two, as still very much a shy, younger orphan to the international glamour puss she becomes by the end of the series. You have to be in her body at so many different times throughout. and 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 was that a challenge for you or was it an opportunity?
4: Oh, I think it was, it was a little bit of both. Um, The first thing we ever shot was an exterior because we shot the majority of it in Berlin, which was absolutely wonderful. But we had a week in Canada shooting exteriors, mostly the Wheatley household. And the first thing I had to do as Beth was walk into a supermarket and they yelled action. And I just started doing this weird flat footed waddle thing. And I didn't know whether anyone was going to catch it. Like, I think that was the challenge. Is in my mind. I was going, okay, I've made a conscious choice to move differently with every age, but subtly. And I hope that this comes across on screen. And I I hope people can see her growing up in that. But I didn't know because I wasn't looking at the monitor. I just had to kind of trust that if I was doing something very, very weird, Scott would tell me. <laughs>
0: but it, but it's amazing to, that you mentioned the the entrance is one of the first things you did, because one of the things Chris and I were both struck by, I mean, in general, Scott's direction is just mind-blowing and beautiful. And, and he's been on our podcast before. We're huge fans. But oh,
4: so you know he, how wonderful he is.
0: We do. Yeah. And but we didn't know he was this wonderful, to be honest, because this is <laughs> such an incredible achievement. Specifically, it's so well-directed, but it's also so directed in that Beth, for example, has these stunning entrances into buildings, you know, with these tracking shots and the cameras moving Mm -hmm. so beautifully in concert with your performance. And, you know, in other circumstances, I think actors who are focused on their performance quite rightly and being present and being emotionally there can sometimes come into conflict with dramatic camera movements that Mm -hmm. that require multiple takes to get it right. How was that balance with Scott? How did you make it seem like it was... I mean, frankly, the show seems effortless.
4: Oh, I mean... I'm, I'm somebody that really enjoys difficult camera movements. Like I love filmmaking the entirety of it. Like, obviously I love performing to me. If I couldn't perform, I, you know, I can't breathe. I would drown, but I love being on set. I love the intricacies of everybody's department. I love it when, and and when that works together, like if you are in visual storytelling and you're not using everything at your disposal from, the wallpaper to the camera movement to tell this story and say something about the person that you're following, like, what are you doing? I don't understand it. And so I think, um, I think it was effortless in a way because I just, I see my job as an actor, as understanding what my director wants before he asks it of me and finding the perfect melting point of, okay, this is where My ideas and your ideas come together to build something much bigger than what one of us could do by ourselves.
1: You know, I was curious whether or not Scott and you discussed reference points for the show that wouldn't seem totally obvious to people watching the show. Because one of the coolest things about this whole story is you can have like a different relationship to chess. So I can broadly understand what is happening even if I don't understand the intricacies of what Beth just did or what Borgoff just did or what Benny just did. And I was curious whether or not there would be, sort of a secret language that you guys would use whether it was was talking about other films other films about savants maybe sports movies so that you guys could communicate with each other and with everybody else on set like this is sort of the moment when this happens this is when the touchdown gets scored or the goal gets scored or this is when the part in Color of Money when they come back and he he beats them at pool or something like that (laughs) like did you guys have to almost develop a like a shorthand on set or did you have like a what, what were some of the references that you were throwing around?
4: We didn't actually have that many references. We were both just so keyed into Beth. Beth was the beginning, the end, everything of this show. It was where is she? And how does that affect how we as the audience view where she is? Mm-hmm. Like, how does, you know, having more muted lighting in this situation, like we, we, we would discuss lighting points and color schemes more than actual films.
1: Did you talk a little bit about sort of cultural awakening because one of the coolest things about this story is sort of the time period in which it it crosses and you know some of my favorite scenes are her kind of engaging with seeing um by shocking blue on tv Mm -hmm. or listening to the kinks and stuff like that and it's such a it, it was obviously a time of a really great awakening for youth culture in the country anyway but did you talk a little bit about what was happening outside of the chessboard for for beth
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, the first music I ever fell in love with was music from the sixties. So I kind of went through a similar phase when I was 16, 17, something like that. And we're both big fans of the kinks. Like the, the kinks being in there was huge for me. There was a huge monologue that Beth had about how the kinks were going to stand the test of time. And Scott had to call me and apologize that he had cut it from the film. Like that <laughs> deeply I felt about it. But, um, It's very interesting because I as a person wanted to know about the context, but Beth herself is weirdly outside of society. Like she comes in in terms of music, but it's almost like she was born without the book of you are a woman, you know, born in 50s America. This is what you're allowed to want. This is the space that you're allowed to occupy. She's outside of that. And um, yeah, it, it was important for me to stay in that.
1: It seems the same thing with the Russians. Like she, she almost reveres them, and and her her friends revere them as these these grandmasters of, of chess, rather than fear them as like sort of a nuclear power and during a cold war. I I thought that the way that was handled was really interesting.
4: Absolutely, because for her, it's it's a respect, but it's also a, a deep love of the passion that they have for it, because she's used to existing in the states, whereas a woman. I mean, whoever thought that they'd start talking about chess as like a first conversation, whilst in Russia, as is said in the show, like they pay people to play chess there. Like that's something aspirational for her.
0: I I love uh, at the start of our conversation that you talked about how the show is uplifting and positive. And I think that that is oddly underrated. I think it's key, obviously, to popularity, but I think we tend to overrate things that highlight darkness, you know, and I think the show is quite brilliant in its ability to be so complex and intelligent and powerful and ultimately to be a positive story. And and specifically, the area that I couldn't stop raving about was the portrayal of Beth's relationships to the men in her life. Each of them from from Bill Camp's janitor, but especially through, we get to to Benny and Harry. Mm -hmm. um, They all have very complicated relationships with their own lives, with Chess and with Beth, but when they present themselves to her, basically, they quickly fall in line in being just awestruck by her genius and deeply, deeply respectful of her abilities and personhood and supportive of her. And mm. there aren't many stories like that. I think relationships like that in life can be common, but in thinking back for comparisons on in the screen, stories where a brilliant, challenging woman gets to bend reality to her will as opposed to the difficult man at the center of many of these projects, it, it really struck me and made the scene at the end when all the guys are high-fiving over the phone, it's, it's, oh, it's, 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 it's an emotional wallop.
4: Oh, it made me cry when I read the book. It made me cry when I read the script. It made me cry in the scene. It makes me cry now. Like it, it me, that, that scene really, really gets to me. Um, no, completely. It's, it's been fascinating watching the reaction because it's made me realize how traumatized we are by trauma. Like, we're all just used to being traumatized by everything, whether it's something that... Right. And look, I've, I've played a fair part of that. I've, If you look at my filmography, I've, I've traumatized plenty of people, you know? <laughs> um, but it was something really beautiful to be a part of and actually really beautiful to watch as an audience member. I, I watched it with, um, with a friend of mine who's staying with me over here. And it's one of the only times that I could really disconnect and watch what was going on on screen. And I felt that as well. I felt like, isn't it gorgeous seeing people just support one another and support one another without necessarily wanting anything back. It's just the beauty of loving another human being. But that really brings me back to, for Beth, I think with her history and with the way that human beings have reacted to her historically in the sense of, you know, her mother killing herself and her going to an orphanage. And then the we the whole thing, I really thought that it was about her learning to love and accept herself enough that she could accept the love of others around her. Mm. And I thought that was a really beautiful message with like, if you can find something to hold on to within yourself. that's good. and,
0: and I love the way that the storytelling of the series you know, is essentially a series of chess matches, even when the board isn't involved. You, mm-hmm. as an actor, get these incredible one-on-one mm-hmm. face-offs with <laughs> yeah. um, a wonder... I mean, a, truly, just... The, and the casting, I think, needs more uh, acclaim, because these are performers, some of whom we've seen before, some of whom we haven't, but presented in ways that we're not used to seeing them. And specifically, I wanted to ask you about working with Marielle Heller, whom I know Chris and I admire a lot as a director, had no idea that she was a performer, and that unfamiliarity immediately sparked on the screen because we didn't know what to think of her much like Beth doesn't know what to think of her and then Scott totally surprised us and and you did as well in that it turns into a very unconventional very loving maternal relationship
4: absolutely i was fascinated when when my agent first saw the show she texted me immediately and she was just like don't trust this woman
1: yeah right and yeah
4: it's but it's fascinating because I mean, I guess obviously I played Beth, so I saw her through Beth's eyes. But that thought had never crossed my mind. Like people have very adverse reactions. He, Andy but
1: and I, like, I were talking about the when the there's a shot of the your foster father when you're going home with them, and he looks at you through the rearview mirror. And we were both like, "Oh God, this guy's gonna be a creep." And it turns out he's just an asshole. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it turns out he's just he's just As like Beth
4: a, says he's just a tad pathetic.
1: Yeah, but like I think the, to what you're saying, where it's just like we're really we're so used to expecting the worst possible behavior out of people because why else would it be on screen then? Mm-hmm. And it just turns out that he's sort of a more pedestrian jerk. And yeah. the, same, the flip was true, I think, for for Alma, where it was like, oh, you know, I, I think Alma's going to wind up really disappointing Beth. And it turns out, no, I mean, she winds up being her companion. And in some Mari,
4: ways... Yeah. yeah. No, Mari and I had an absolute blast playing opposite each other first because we really like one another. But secondly, because it's such a fascinating relationship. I don't know how many relationships you have in your own life where you're like, this was a transaction. This was a deal that we made Mm. in that scene where she talks to her about like, I'll take care of you. If you promise to never go near Denver, that was a (laughs) transaction. I promise to put you first. If you promise to put me first and we're going to support each other because we don't have anybody else and we're going to make this work. And um, I I thought it was really beautiful. And Mari is such a a soulful performer that it was, um, some of the scenes are really heartbreaking. Uh,
0: Of the, of your opponents, when you actually had to sit across a chessboard from them, uh, Hmm. which were the most enjoyable to play Uh, or, or did they all have their own energy because the performers were different and the circumstances were as well?
4: Absolutely. It's, it's what you've just said, you know, it's, it's really special to be that close to somebody, but also to have actual pieces that you can use to punctuate your emotions. Yeah. You know, it's like that pissed me off. Move the rook, you know, like you, you have something to do with it. Um, but the, the chess sequences that I enjoyed the most were the speed chess. I loved that so much. Like I'd never been in a situation where I had to learn, (laughs) multiple complex sequences over three boards in 10 minutes and then like do it and i knew that we had a certain amount of time for the day and if we didn't get it that day it was going to throw our whole schedule off and the feeling after the first take when we did it and we did it right it was magical like completely magical
1: is the blooper reel from this series just (laughs) like i accidentally moved the bishop here you know like (laughs)
4: i I have to say i don't i don't tend to um big myself up much but i I am very proud of how i how i tackle the the chess it's mostly me just swearing when i've talked a line or something like that or dancing around the house there's so much dancing around the house
0: it it has inspired us i think that i i keep suggesting that for future episodes of the podcast chris and i should get a clock and yes. and, yeah. and compete directly for the, just purely on the on our the strength of our ideas that way you know yeah. none of this frippery none of this what i'm doing now
4: digressing <laughs> no but wait question on the strength of your ideas who's going to call that you can't call we, it
1: yourself our producer kaya she could okay, she could fair. just sort of just come in and like give us the red or green light. <laughs> or,
0: or, or or perhaps the russians because <laughs> that's, right. they are, that's they are the most passionate of yeah. it's just a They're huge great.
1: huge pod in moscow positive yeah.
0: influence here in america
1: we just want to thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for for making the show. Andy, did no. you have anything else we wanted to ask?
0: I, I guess I just, uh, this may be coming at it from a strange place, but I I think Chris and I have been reading that you're in Belfast filming. Uh, is it, you're filming The Northman, this, mm-hmm. the new film um, by Robert Eggers. And I should just confess, I am way too much of a uh, chicken to watch his films. <laughs> <laughs> I am in trouble no, because no. I told people that I was had the opportunity to speak to you. And of course, everyone said you have to ask her about the witch. It's the most um, important film, ha- and, and
4: it's so good. <laughs> I fr-
0: I, here's the thing: I, I feel comfortable existing in a space where I—I I bet it's
4: incredible. He doesn't even
1: like these things described to him. Like I, I can't I have read to the go Wikipedia on page. Podcasts to talk oh, about these things. Okay. So,
0: so, so could you? As because again, I I admire great work, and I admire you as a performer. And the stills I've seen from the lighthouse, boy, those are beautiful looking images. That's mm-hmm. not so even
1: a horror could, movie, though. <laughs>
0: But it's it's horror adjacent. So I guess if I could just take a moment to ask you, and as the star of the film, mm-hmm. how can I engage with this work? <laughs> Clearly so not I, with a curtain and darkness setup you have I, there at five p.m. in Northern Ireland. Yeah, but maybe, no, maybe
4: and maybe not with me. Maybe that's maybe that's not the way. To, I watched I watched The Witch with somebody, and they're like, "I can't. You should not be here. Like, this is where I'm like, can you please go?" I was like, oh, "Yeah, okay, fine. Text me later." Um, I actually, I think The Witch is a great movie for people who are fearful of the horror genre because there is a lot to commend it other than it's scaring you, and also it's not—we're not particularly gory, and we're not into jump scares. So there's nothing that's going to come out at you and scare you. It's You're being more very careful
1: with him. I appreciate this. I still <laughs> don't think he can handle it. The is unsettling. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but but like, win, window, like... <laughs> windows open 10 a.m. on a summer day. Like, like yeah, set the scene. But,
4: but this is the thing. I've heard a lot of people watch horror movies without the score, but you can't not listen to the score of The Witch. It's so interesting and awful and scare Like, Oh, I don't know. Maybe listen okay. to the soundtrack before you watch the movie and see how you feel <laughs> about that, and then give it a go.
0: So this is actually similar to what I've heard people say: how to become immune to poison. Right? You just take a little poison every day.
1: Yeah, just like a tiny bit. But then you wind up like <laughs> me, where you're addicted poison. to poison, and you're just like need you need the rush, you know? And that's you...
4: like, look, I'm I'm obviously biased, but Robert makes fantastic singular movies it's like it's not it's not like something that you have seen before watch The Lighthouse you know maybe watch The Lighthouse first but you won't like as a film buff you cannot deprive yourself of a Robert Eggers movie he's so good
0: okay I appreciate this and if if I go through this would you (laughs) come back on and talk to us about The Northman when it releases
4: absolutely I'll be there
0: thank you But you have
4: to go through with it. Yeah, Only for you,
0: (laughs) yes. Thank you for the gift of the Queen's Gambit for you. I want to make it clear to you and the Russians, I'm not doing this for Chris.
4: Okay, I I hear you, I understand. Okay, thank you. No, thank you guys so much. This was so much fun. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for doing it.
0: We really appreciate it. Best of luck with the filming.
1: Take
4: care. Bye. Bye, guys.
1: Thanks so much to Anya Taylor Joy for joining us today, and now we're going to get into my conversation with Amanda Dobbins about the first three episodes of season four of The Crown. I am joined. What is now becoming a tradition, unlike any other, they say that about the Masters. I'm talking to the Master of the Crown. It's Amanda Dobbins.
3: Hello, Chris. I'm elated.
1: Yeah, it's it came and it's beautiful. It's here and it's beautiful. It's season four of The Crown. I was a late comer to this show. I was resistant at first. It took me a little while, and uh, it's quickly become—or quickly, it's slowly become—one of my favorite things on television, probably of this decade. I think season four is remarkable. Amanda and I have decided to—we're gonna—we're gonna like get as much out of this as we possibly can. So we're gonna do three episodes at a time, uh, and then they so, so three, three, and then four. Amanda, you are sticking to that in terms of your watching as well, right?
3: Yes. I've only seen three episodes of the crown as of this recording, which I don't want to just completely air myself out on this podcast, but I need people to understand that pop culturally speaking, this is the season of television I've been waiting my whole life for. Like, and that's, that's not a joke and that's not an exaggeration. I have a, um, Just a very deep and somewhat unexplained, frankly, interest in the royal family and specifically the Diana years. I um, have read a book by Tina Brown called The Diana Chronicles, which is a biography of the late Princess Diana and really about this celebrity and media culture that surrounded her in the 80s. More times, really, than I can count. I don't know why I've read this book so much. I think it is a fantastic book about celebrity and media, and I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in The Crown. But I just know too much about everything that's happening here and so have been waiting for years and possibly decades for it. And I have to tell you, so far it lives up to that insane expectation, which I'm amazed by.
1: So when you were going into this, was there a part of you, what was the thing you would be most skeptical about their ability to pull off? Was there anything that you were like, you know, the thing is, is that I, was it Emma Corrin? Was it Mm -hmm. the idea of like who they were going to cast as Diana? Because obviously there's going to be a pretty quick changeover of acting duties here. Right. Or was it maybe just like the capturing the fame around her, which I think we're only just getting into by fairy tale, the third episode.
3: Yeah, I think the Diana of it all and who you're going to put in that role is is difficult though. You know, I think it's probably more difficult for people of our age than it would be for say Kaya or even for Emma Corrin herself who I believe was two when Princess Diana Um, Died, and so has no memory of her. And you and I have a memory of her that is 25 years old at this point. So even our memory of that media sensation, it's it is possibly a bit easier to recreate. Well, it's like we have memories
1: of our memories, almost. Exactly. Like it's like we remember it being a a thing on television. We remember mourning, like people mourning her death. We remember candle in the wind. We remember all the stuff around her. The thing that's been amazing about watching this season so far is it is essentially like my lifespan you know it's it's like now we are in like but more kind of personally this is some of the stuff that's happening even outside of the royals with thatcher and we're going to get into uh jillian anderson's portrayal of margaret thatcher and peter morgan's portrayal of margaret thatcher is my dad you know my dad was uh british he moved to the united states in in the late 60s but remained very close with his family over there and has very very specific opinions about margaret thatcher which are not positive uh, at all. Correct. Um, and it, it, I don't know if you were coming to this show blind, if you would n- understand the levels of hatred people had for Thatcher, like a lot of people had for Thatcher.
3: That's certainly not. And I, we'll talk more about that specifically in in episode two. But, you know, to your question of, like, what I was concerned about whether, what they would get right, not necessarily what they would get right, but... I was very curious about just how the show would take sides and a show like this with this many characters and this much uh, drama as this season certainly has. um, If you don't know the story of Charles and Diana, I mean, I guess, spoiler alert for the rest of this podcast, but like also you're on a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. also if you don't I know the story. I watch The Crown,
1: but don't care sure. about Charles and Diana.
3: <laughs> But also, you know, if you like don't know the story of Margaret Thatcher in the 80s in England, like spoiler alert, you're in for a wild ride. And I, it's always been so interesting to me to try, try to parse the question if how this show feels about the crown itself. And, and obviously it's Royalist and obviously it's ultimately because the queen is at the center of the show. It it is empathetic with her. And I think she probably comes off better than not, but now that everyone's kind of in the great game together, which is really what this decade is about between Margaret Thatcher and Diana, and the queen at the center, it's, it's really interesting to see where the show's allegiances are and how it interprets these moments that we knew about from reading the newspaper or have like maybe become lore in our memories, but how they're presenting the version of events is really interesting. And so far has not like a hundred percent aligned with my understanding, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's a richer text.
1: There's also the danger of of poisoning people against the characters. That I think I, I think that the thing that I, I'm most fascinated by is Peter Morgan's obviously a very empathetic writer, and he's he's one of our best television writers, one of our best dramatic writers. And you can feel as these first three episodes go, just a kind of souring on Charles a little bit. I think you yeah. know he, there's a degree to which he is helpless. And I I when I when I refer to these people, by the way, I'm I am personally entirely referring to their fictional, quasi-fictional representation in this show. I don't really have a ton of knowledge about these people, but if you watch the previous season, I, I think it, it I would go as far as to say that you'd be pretty cold not to kind of fall in love with Charles, and or at least feel very deeply for him, and feel very deeply for how his life got sort of taken from him in a lot of ways. Now, maybe not anywhere near as badly as it did for generations of English people in lots of different ways, but the way in which his life was not his own is is tragic, you know? And I think a lot of people were like, for lack of a better term, Team Charles in a lot of ways. And then as you get into this season, he's he's more and more of a bastard.
3: Yes, I would agree with that. And I think even I in the last season, I was surprised by the extent to which I was Team Charles. I credit a lot of it to Josh O'Connor's performance. I think yeah. he is extraordinary, but you're completely right that the portrayal, especially in the second half of season three, there's that just absolutely tremendous episode about him going to Wales and searching for like some sort of family and understanding and sense of purpose that he cannot find at his home. Um, You know, and even there, there's that tension of that. He has to go to Wales, which is a country that is uh, protesting its British rule. Yeah. Like, throughout the episode, there's that tension of, like, these people don't even want him, but it's the only place he can find acceptance. And, you know, throughout the season, and especially the the Camilla of it all, which has echoes of the the Margaret and um, Captain Townsend, I think his name is, but the, the marriage she wasn't allowed to pursue in season one. And that's another interesting thing about this season. We've covered enough time where you're starting to see echoes, and they're yeah. echoing certain scenes as well, and, like, shots as well as themes, which I think is so exciting. But yeah, you felt bad for him. And now it's just kind of curdling mm-hmm. if if that makes any sense. And I think that there are moments of, of real empathy and also moments of him being like a real jerk. Yeah. And careless with
1: people's of, lives. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, and entitled. And one thing that's really s- stuck out to me in the first three episodes, you know, obviously the royal family's entitlement and cluelessness has always been on display in these seasons. But it's, starting to become more of like a character trait and Mm -hmm. more obvious They're And they're not really putting anyone down in any specific way, but if you start connecting the dots between what you see the the queen doing and some of the choices she's making and what you see Charles doing and some of the choices that he's making, and these people are just divorced from reality, which is absolutely the case. And I think increasingly the case as the years go on.
1: The, dedication that this show has to essentially telling Elizabeth's story. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea that, that the crown is essentially Elizabeth's story that, you know, there are these framing devices, whether it's the prime ministers who come to meet with her or whether, you know, it's her extended family, but ultimately that that's going to be what this show is. We talked about this a little bit last season as Elizabeth gets more and more static. How does that Mm -hmm. affect the show itself? What have you felt in that regard for the first few episodes?
3: You know, I thought it was very funny in her kind of first episode her first scene, I'm sorry, with um Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher and she's just comic relief. Yeah. And I th- like I think she's very funny and a, a little bit of is because Olivia Colman is like one of the great actresses but also comedic actresses of our time and so she's playing it for laughs and you kind of see a little bit like I did wonder I, like how much of the character is being written to her, you know, and her strengths. But I think in a lot of ways this season, and I've only seen three episodes, so I can't really be spoiling it, will like be about the queen in the ways that she is eclipsed. Because Mm -hmm. I think the story of the 80s, certainly in in the UK, but certainly in the royal family is you have kind of the the twin rising sons of Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana who uh, take all of the limelight and attention and kind of wreak havoc and the, the queen who is supposed to be like a stable force in the center of the show is like definitely none of those things or can't be any of those things. And so I, in some ways it's about her in absence or in reaction and uh, happily Olivia Coleman is really good at reaction, but it'll be interesting to see as they, as this season goes on.
1: So we could start talking about episode one, if you'd like, that was um that's the gold stick and that's where we meet Thatcher and the episode itself is largely, mm-hmm concerned with the sort of the death of Mountbatten and the reaction to that. And I think it sets up a pretty useful like structure that the show I think continues at least through the, these first few episodes where they essentially do two episodes within each episode. There's Mm -hmm. the Margaret episode and then there's the Royal family episode and it's brought together by some sort of thematic cohesion, whether it's a stag hunt or, you know, like whatever. I, I, I only know kind of like my dad's version of it and a lot of what I've read in, frankly, like novels rather than history about England at the sure. time. But you really do get the impression that Thatcher comes along and unwinds slash dissuades people of all these notions of what it means to be English, you know, and not necessarily in in a pleasant way. But both the the royals and the sort of the lords of of the land and their ideas about like what their role in society is and what kind of sway they have over society. And at that same time, the more blue collar working class trade unionist ideas about like what it means to go to work in England and what you sort of deserve for doing so. And Margaret comes through and just kind of wipes away all of it with these austerity measures and all this kind of fiscal uh, philosophy that she applies to to England. What did you think of the first episode?
3: Yeah, I should clarify that I might be a Diana scholar, but I'm definitely not a scholar of British yeah. like economic history or or political history, uh, which says a lot about me. And once again, I'm telling on myself. But yeah, I, I would say that my understanding, you know, primarily like from novels and history is that the Margaret Thatcher pr- project was undoing the post-war project in Britain, mm-hmm. and she is not looked upon kindly for that. Uh, at least socially, and 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 so I found myself in episode one. Uh, you know, Jillian Anderson walks in, and obviously Margaret Thatcher had a particular way of speaking and a particular way of dressing and a particular um, hairdo that has you know other others have have uh, parodied or recreated, as the case may be, and even won Oscars for it in the case of Meryl Streep. So, but she comes in and you're kind of like, okay, this seems a little bit, not like an SNL sketch, but I'm going to need a minute to ease into this. Yeah. And then I think what she's doing is pretty remarkably nuanced to the point that later on I was like, oh, wait, am I not supposed to completely see her as evil incarnate? Um, And again, that's that's the thing I was talking about of trying to figure out the motivations, but also where this show sees the motivations. She plays a pretty it's kind of expository for her mm-hmm. in in episode one, right? Because then she shows up and is trying to, and obviously she'll be a major character, but also kind of sets the political scene in, in the UK and its neighbors, which then sets up the, the Mountbatten death, which is the the center of the episode. Is that something that you knew about before watching this episode? Um,
1: I knew that he was killed by the IRA, yeah. Um, just from my, like, reading about Irish history generally and, and a little bit interested in the troubles. Like I was pretty aware that that happened. It was also, I believe sp- not spoiled, but like they had pictures of Charles dance filming that scene in the daily mail. Oh, did and they? they did like a big, like mountain Batten's death scene. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. yeah, Don't get yeah. too attached to Charles dance yet sure. again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but I, uh, I thought that that scene was sort of illustrative of, of what we're talking about, if you read about Mountbatten, he has some 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 strikes in the con column. You know what I mean? I mean, he is essentially the avatar of British colonialism, and mm-hmm. may or may not have participated in planning a coup. You know, so yes. he, he's he in the in the show itself, I think he is seen as like a passive participant in that, who gets a rap on the knuckles, if I remember correctly, for his his role in possibly right. overthrowing Wilson. But you are left to feel the massive hole in Charles's life when Mountbatten dies which is this complicated thing that this show does over and over again
3: especially because of that absolutely just vicious scene between Philip as played by Tobias Menzies and Charles which was like I was a little surprised by because the show isn't usually that obvious mmm And I don't even want to say that it's obvious, but this just, Philip says to Charles exactly what he's feeling, which, you know, I've been led to believe is not what British people do. And it's, he's definitely helped by alcohol and in the, in the wake of a a loss. Um, but he's just like, yeah, you supplanted me. And I guess it's not completely obvious because he's clearly talking, he is talking about how Charles supplanted him in, um, in Dickey in Mountbatten's life, but it's like. Definitely also about how he's going to be the king and he's more important. And it's, you know, about Philip's hold. I'm just like the sidekick issues, which sure. But once again, he's a soldier who never really
1: had a war. Yeah. All these things. Yeah.
3: Right. Right. But yes, this show presents it as a a tremendous loss, which uh, through everything I've read in terms of the role that he played in that family, I think it was, and it like was to, to Charles as well. I don't know whether this letter that was written is historically accurate. And we'll talk more about how and why Charles decides to marry Diana. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: I think the accounts that I've read aren't as straight a line, but of course that's, you know, TV making. And it's probably also just like a lot of therapy being done in real time. So Good job, everybody. But but I did anyway. I I did know that it was coming from the moment that the episode started because it's it be- begins with a, a voiceover of um, some sort of IRA broadcast. Is that yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, even there, the show. It's, I I where its allegiances are on that one on the troubles we don't really need to get into but I, I like I did think that the it was interesting how when they show Mountbatten's funeral that the um the broadcast comes back
1: yeah it, it, 18, the 18 the 18 taken from and Mountbatten yes. we got 18 at Mountbatten referring yes. to the ambush of the British soldiers as well yeah 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 uh it, it's complicated. You know, I, I feel like Mountbatten, both in what I've read about him historically, and especially in the show, is the connection that the royal family still has to actual governing. It is this person who was actually playing roles in um, the defense of England, in its its projects overseas, its empire building, um, seemed to have some sort of hand in the shaping of things. And then when he disappears, not only does Charles you know, nominal father figure disappear, but sort of this connection to I uh, you know, there inf- there's there's sphere of influence shrinks considerably after his death, I think.
3: Yes, absolutely. He's also a connection to empire as you, I mean as you said, in it really And they're playing Ible dibble
1: in the in the sitting room. That's sort of where right. they wind up, you know.
3: It's yeah, it but it, I mean it is kind of this show is so good and I think it's so well written and I think it finds like the the humanity and really interesting domestic stories in these people who we don't have a lot of access to. I think that's tremendous television, but you do watch someone like Mountbatten and you're like, okay, well f- he was first a part of the German Royal family because back in, you know, the beginning of the century, all the Royal families were connected and then no one else survived. And so then they tried to extend the empire this way. I mean, we're, it's another time. It it's is like, like it's literally like
1: deciding who gets to be King of Spain. Cause like his yeah. cousin wants to be, but it's, it's going to make problems. It's
3: if he preposterous. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway,
1: Okay, so what did you think of the introduction to Diana? So we get I, to see her, you know, dynamite I full, full Shakespeare peeking around the plant
3: i i I was astonished. i I will say that I texted you eight minutes into watching episode One of the <laughs> Crown last night, and it was after that scene. And I was just like, this show is unbeatable. Yeah, it is so good. and just and and that is like pure like symbolic TV, like whatever you know, movie making of bringing together the themes and the staging and the visuals and the chemistry. It's all working. It's so well crafted. I, I honestly don't know if Diana Spencer ever read *A Midsummer Night's Dream in real life, but I don't care. Right. It, it was incredible.
1: I wonder, there's this thing that The Crown does that I think is amazing, which is it spends all of its capital on a relatively small stage. You know, it's like, That scene in that setting with her or um, some of the things that happen in the next couple of episodes with her kind of whiling away her days while Charles is on these long trips Mm -hmm. is like so overwhelming in terms of the detail and in terms of its scale and scope. But then they kind of keep it in those doors. Like you don't you know, we see Mountbatten's death. But we don't really get lots of cutaway scenes to different IRA situations or m- what Thatcher's policy were starting to do. And I think that that does kind of dull the impact of understanding w- some of the damage that she did. But at yeah. the same time, when you're in that room and you're watching these two people meet, it feels like the entire universe. Like, And, and what they choose to cash in on versus what they choose to withhold or skip over is really fascinating to me.
3: I completely agree, and I, one thing that I was going to say about these three episodes um, that was not missing for me at all. But and forgive me if this is a really, really dumb realization to make in season four of a show that I've watched obsessively and have thought about nonstop. But I was like, there is there's a real contained, insular nature to this. This is this is a show that like is about history and power and and England and it it is interested in those themes but only to the extent that those themes reveal something about these people it's a people first or how they
1: experience them. like when you think about Elizabeth going to that town in Wales that's had the landslide there are plenty of tragedies that have probably occurred during her reign but she was there for that one otherwise these things are things that are happening on television these things are the things that are happening on the radio
3: Yeah. And especially watching the Diana of it all um, because in episode two and episode three, as she's integrated into the family, there is outside these walls, just like a massive media storm going on. Right. And that's how like you and I would have been familiar with it. I mean, we were not really following the news then I wasn't alive, but we've seen the footage. Like we are familiar with Diana through that, that media filter and she is a media creation to some point. And so part of me was like, okay, but like, where is that? You know? Right. Cause that was like such a big deal, but that's not the exercise of, of this show. And I need to not be greedy was my, uh, was the lesson of that.
1: Let's talk about Memorial test. Is that a yeah. thing?
3: I, I mean, I've never been invited, and I certainly don't think I would pass it. <laughs>
1: well, it's definitely a thing with most people where it's like, you have to come meet my parents. Yeah. But I, I just mean, was the idea that prospective spouses were brought to this Scottish castle for a weekend of
3: yeah. you know, board
1: games and hunting,
3: and I, if they passed the muster? I don't know if it is anything that formal because you know even within the context of the episode the the test isn't named right sure. it's just kind of like a up and down but I I do think it happened fairly often I everything that they say about Charles's dating life is like quite true he was he was a man about town as um, as they say. And Diana did make an early trip to Balmoral and was like considered a success, and so that meant that she was suitable. I think you know it's their stronghold. It is the place where they go on vacation, even though it doesn't look like a vacation to me. I mean, it is just raining everywhere all the time, and people are like, "Ah, summer! I love it." Yeah, well, I, I know. It's it's I couldn't it couldn't be me, but the idea that someone can either sink or swim in those particular circumstances um, is like definitely how they operate and that it's not named and that it's not kind of like that there is the protocol sheet, but you can still get things wrong because you misread it and you're kind of set up to fail. I mean, that's elitism. That's what happens to Margaret is like, she shows up in black
1: tie and everybody is like wearing their barber jackets. Yeah,
3: sure. And I like, I'm not a member of the British upper class, but it's, you know, that's how all, a lot of privileged people in aristocracies work, right, is that they set up a bunch of rules that you don't know are there and then right. you get kept out because of them.
1: So this episode does the same thing where it basically the first half of it is Margaret's experience at Balmoral Castle and then the second half is Diana's. The thing I wanted to ask you most about is, I wouldn't necessarily call it a flaw in the show, but I would say mm-hmm. one of my blank spots as a viewer is understanding the nature of Charles and Camilla's relationship through his courtship with Diana. And okay. I think a little bit of time passes, obviously, between the first episode and the second episode. And he's obviously having these intimate conversations with Camilla, who only ever talks on the phone with the same hairstyle in front of the same fire every, day, <laughs> every time. <laughs> but they definitely got Emerald Fettel to do all of her scenes in like yep. a block. Yeah. But... um. I think that I was a little thrown off because I was like, "Are they still seeing one another intimately? Like she's she's with Andrew. She has a child. She is hiding her child in this so show, but
3: <laughs> right. So you're asking, are they having sex? And the answer well, is well, I was yes. just curious.
1: Like, what's the yeah. nature of their relationship and how well known was that?
3: So that is a question that is up for some debate in later years. But I, you know, and I want to say with everything, I'm relying on the Tina Brown book, the Diana Chronicles, and then the Andrew Morton book um, about Diana, which was written with Diana's cooperation. So biased, but, you know, at least we know the primary sources. The Before they were married, they were very much in contact. And I. there's no reason to assume that they weren't having sex because everyone was having sex. And... I think Andrew Parker Bowles was known to be somewhat promiscuous as well. Right. And, you know, in the show itself, when he's on the phone with Mountbatten just before Mountbatten is killed, he says that he and Camilla are meeting up for a couple days, and that's what starts the fight. So I, I think that there... I know that later on, for sure, there is this kind of the nature of their relationship is trying to meet at various like fancy homes around the UK and like all of their rich across aristocratic friends would loan out like their various country estates for them. So, I mean, there's no reason to believe it wasn't happening then as well.
1: This is the episode that I think we were first asked to really feel sympathy for Margaret um, Mm -hmm. because she doesn't understand these customs. I guess we've, we've hinted at this, but how did that make you feel? Was it more like in the moment it was, it, you were completely invested and then afterward you were like, wait a second? I, I, I don't necessarily think it's Peter Morgan's job to adjudicate who Margaret Thatcher was outside of the reality of the moment he's writing, but it is an interesting conundrum for the viewer.
3: Okay, so you're talking about Margaret Thatcher and not Princess Margaret, because for a second, I thought you were talking about Princess Margaret. No,
1: no,
3: no. Um, We are supposed to feel bad for Princess Margaret at this point, even though she's just lecturing her on, you know, how to speak and and where to sit. That's a very funny scene. Yeah, I think what's most bewildering is that I think the audience is supposed to take Margaret Thatcher's point of view of like these people are ridiculous and there is that kind of climactic scene after she's you know they've failed the dinner test and after she's failed the stalking test and after she sat in queen victoria's chair which is a real thing that they don't let anyone sit on that that's for real a lot of these things are real but so they're at the they're at the scottish games like the traditional games i throwing the poles
1: and stuff yes
3: and Margaret Thatcher is just being like, these people are imbeciles. They have no culture. They have no like civilization. They have no, like how are they in charge? And uh, you know, I think a little bit, you're supposed to at least consider that possibility Mm -hmm. throughout, throughout these first three episodes. And it's very strange to be in Margaret Thatcher's mind. Uh, examining that because if you can sympathize with her on re-examination of the royal family then are you going to sympathize with her on the re-examination of everything else that she re-examines which right. is right. not which is a dangerous like are you and, supposed
1: to fist pump when she fires everybody
3: yeah i mean and that's they're also playing the woman thing which mm-hmm. is certainly interesting to me and i think that in the first few seasons they handled it was interesting the way that they handled the queen being a young woman in a, what is definitively a man's world. And I always thought that that was a bit interesting. And now they're kind of pitting the two against each other, um, as, as we so often do. And I do think you're supposed to, I don't know. I I think it's meant to highlight the complications of all of this and maybe make you re-examine your relationship to the whole show. Because again, as we mentioned, these it's the monarchy is absolutely an absurd institution.
1: What did you think of the relationship between Elizabeth and Thatcher in terms of Prime Minister power rankings, in terms of the, just the sheer entertainment of watching her interact with this person?
3: I mean, d- d- in terms of sheer entertainment, delightful. And they are, they are definitely playing off of each other. And I think Olivia Coleman is having like the time of her life. In terms of Prime Minister power rankings, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think it's going to get a lot spicier before, before all is said and done. We're only in what, 1981. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it gets a lot worse. Not good. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <we're> not, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. Eighty four was bad, guys. Um, I, I'm kind of a- I'm anxious to get to this moment, so I just I'm going mm-hmm. to break mm-hmm. ahead and do it. Um yeah. For fairy tale, I I, I thought Bow Moral Test was remarkable. Fairy tale was like real like levitational shit. Like yeah. there's. I certainly didn't like anticipate it, but like when you when you watch in the beginning of Fairy Tale, the Edge of Seventeen moment, mm-hmm. you kind of are having like an out-of-body experience where you're like, yo, they did this. <laughs> they really did yes. this. Yes.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's um no, I, I think it's extraordinary and the way they've handled Diana throughout is pretty remarkable. It's been interesting in kind of the the Harry and Meghan era. Mm-hmm and people having a renewed interest in the Royal family and trying to kind of explain to people how weird the Royal family is and like kind of how it works and the disconnect between the real world and kind of, and their like their weird Baroque routine. And, you know, I think Meghan Markle, has been compared to Diana a lot and there are a lot of similarities in terms of someone coming into the family who has not been raised in the way that they do things and is like what the hell is going on um but I thought that fairy tale did such like a an amazing memory of like creating Mm -hmm. that feeling and you can really understand it and you're like oh right she's just 19 and she wants to listen to her Walkman and and has a completely different experience of the world than this creaky old institution, and of course, there's going to be friction. But like, just having you live it in, like through her experience, I like I, I thought was very smart storytelling, and it's also kind of like the best encapsulation of why all of these things go so incredibly wrong as they always seem to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, just the name fairy tale. You think when you when you see it on the on the sort of Netflix user interface, you think. Oh, right, because she's she's a princess and she gets mm-hmm. to have her dreams come true because she's going to marry a prince. Mm-hmm. It's really more the fairy tale of the princess stranded alone in the castle. And it's yeah. them, whether consciously or unconsciously, whether Charles is essentially displacing his own frustrations and putting them onto this human being who really didn't ask for that.
3: Mm-hmm. He
1: is saying, I'm miserable, so I'm going to make you miserable too. And I'm going to abandon you in the rain. <laughs> and I'm right. going to send you back. And for the first few days, it's going to be exciting and you can roller skate around, but you're going to slowly lose it as as we just isolate you and isolate you and isolate you. And then I make, and then my, your one contact with the real world is going to be with my on again, off again ex.
3: Yeah, which is also a real thing. And I like even the note that Camilla writes in the series, like what you can see is the actual, the same text as the note that was given to Diana, which is just like a absolute mind fuck. I, I think this episode is so well done and, and it makes the choice, like it makes the choice to be like, this is a person who's cut off and this mm-hmm. is what's going on. And I think it's pretty exhilarating as someone who has read so many different accounts of these things. and been so fascinated to watch the show be like, here's what's happening. Yeah. And here's our interpretation of it. And, and here's to who's to blame to an extent. I do think that there was like a, there's a lot more going on in real life. Um,
1: So so tell me a little bit about it because I thought it was a real interesting choice (laughs) that they, they never break from Diana's perspective there. Like Charles goes off and we were just like, okay, but like you could have easily leveled out the audience sentiment meter by Mm -hmm having Charles's B plot of like him being like, I'm still sort of like not sure about what I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. And instead it just seems actually sadistic on his part.
3: Yeah. And, and I think I wasn't there obviously. And I've just read a bunch of things. I think it's honestly, it's the honest choice. Ultimately it's, it's boiling a lot of things down to the essential thing, which is that she's like, she was a 19 year old. She was 19 years old. She's as young as you're seeing. And got thrown in the deep end with absolutely no support. And Charles was of no help to her, whether it's because he was still in love with Camilla or whether it's because he um, had all of these expectations from his family or, you know, because he screwed up or some version of all of the above. Um, the royal family itself was like no help to her. And and they show that by the queen just like never being available as mm-hmm. she's usually not available to Charles either. Um, they show Diana's grandmother giving her the training. Yeah. By all accounts, a historically accurate portrayal of that woman, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> that gives you a sense of what she's seeing in her own family, and you know her her family life was a, a bit more complicated than you can see just because you don't really see them. But I think like a lack of support and feeling like she's alone and looking for love somewhere else is true to what you see on the show and true to what happened in real life. You don't see that. I guess you see the media in terms of all of the letters coming in Mm -hmm. and the, and that she starts sort of replacing real life company with all of those letters and with that attention. And I'm curious to see what they do in the next episodes, because the impression that you get is that, without any love or, you know, connection to anyone around her. She starts kind of, the power of celebrity is, is very real. And so that kind of starts filling in, but it, it, it really boils it down to the, to the essentials in a way that I I guess you have to on a TV show, but that, but I was pretty impressed by.
1: They then sort of pivot once Charles returns to, to building up towards the wedding and Mm -hmm. you get that, the moment of charles sort of having this breakdown while the fireworks are going off and talking to yeah. his mother i thought that was a remarkable scene and it it was it was tough because you are essentially at that point when charles returns it's it's really incredible writing because now you've sort of if not turned on charles you see him in through somebody else's eyes for the beginning of the show you're kind of seeing the family through charles's eyes up until that moment it's mm-hmm. what this what this group of people is doing to him and what they won't let him do. And that's the moment where I'm like, oh yeah, like it's, it's slightly moving. And now we're seeing this guy maybe as a different, as a different kind of character.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I was also really struck with this scene right before that. And this is some real crown nerd stuff. So I apologize, but it's when they're in St. Paul's is where they got married. They didn't get married in Westminster Abbey, because, I think because of the size of the church, but they're there for the rehearsal and yeah. it's the first time they meet since he's been away on tour and they kind of go into that private chapel to have a fight. And I don't know if you remember the scene from the first season of the crown right before yeah. the queen's coronation yeah. in what I think is the best episode of, of that season. Um, when Claire Foy and Matt Smith as queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip have a, a fight about their marriage and the power in their marriage and their commitment to the future of their marriage, like in, in a side chapel, uh, and it's just it's like a very clear echo, and you know that's like that's cool filmmaking, but it is also just the generational echo of like, yeah. these people are put in these positions and asked to sacrifice their personal happiness or their relationships, and and increasingly for what?
1: Sure, right. I mean that is the thing is like when I, I think when I was watching the um, the scene between Anne and Charles, mm-hmm. you know you're kind of asking. I think Anne has arrived at this point, but it's just like, what do you want? You know? Yeah. You know, you're ne- you are never going to be someone of real consequence in terms of governing, in terms of yeah. deciding the fate of this country. You are now an ornament. So mm-hmm. within that reality, what do you want? And he, like lots of people his age, is just like, I don't know, but not this. Yeah. And Anne is just like, trust me, it's easier not to fight it. Basically.
3: Yeah. Why can't you accept it? Why can't you just kind of, she's she's the practical one to her core. I was kind of, I was very team Anne. In, I've never really cared about her in real life. She seems like cool. Uh, she likes horses.
1: Yeah. Cool that, horse that's, girl. She's, yeah. I
3: think she's very good at horses, whatever that means. Um, but I, I thought that her season three character was great. And I felt a little betrayed when she just rolls in and is like, get it over with. Yeah, right. Like, what what are you guys doing? Like, what are we... (laughs) And, like, really? Like, no one wants to stop and think about this. And it is interesting the way... Really, only Margaret.
1: Only Margaret is the... uh, Princess Margaret is the one who's like, we can stop this.
3: Yeah. And and even when Charles is saying that, he's portrayed as such a whiner Mm -hmm. and a guy who is, like being unfaithful or betraying, you know, Diana, which true, I mean, again, this is like a 19 year old who didn't really know what was going on, who just got put in a tremendously unfair situation, but that he's being unfair and a bad person instead of asking some like pretty reasonable questions in real life, Chris, they had met, like interacted in person together a total of 13 times before they got married. 13. That's like, what are we doing? Also, <laughs> uh, like... And he's obviously emphasis. got a multi-year
1: relationship on and off again with Camilla.
3: Right. And so the, the deal is like, because,
1: he and Camilla, like they were, she was the love of his life and she was just never allowed to have her.
3: Yes. That is at least what they're selling now now that they have been like happily married for some time. And I think that that is like, a that, that's a very nice story. And... That they have been married for a very long time. He never gave her up. Like whether or not it always had to be that way is under, you know, some discussion depending on who you talk to. But the other thing that the show kind of like shies away from, frankly, is that Diana had to be a virgin. Mm. So the and not Diana, but whoever Charles married had to be a virgin. So the other reason that Camilla was like a non-starter was she like had a quote passed.
1: right? She was a, so uh, yeah, an adult. Like,
3: yeah. <laughs> and and no one's being like, should we reconsider this? It's right. 1981. Right. Like maybe it's okay. It's very strange stuff.
1: So for the first three episodes obviously immensely satisfying for you. Yes. Um, and then we're entering into really the the rocket ship for Diana. Where she just becomes a global icon. Uh, the I've I've watched a few past three, so mm-hmm. I in, in my when I got screeners and I I'm really excited to see what you think of the next couple. We'll do these conversations every episode for the next three episodes. So I was so thankful to Amanda for joining me. Any final notes on these first three episodes?
3: I just think it's so rare that a show actually lives up to expectations. Like, And this. your expectations and, and you were not
1: this. small for this. Yeah.
3: No, they were sky high. And I think that that's a testament both to this show kind of, it's had four seasons and there is something about maybe not training a viewership, but like getting room to build up to this point because like Margaret Thatcher and Diana, is like you couldn't make a better case study for how to explore what's going on yes. in like in Britain and to explore the queen herself and the nature of of power and being a- And her you relevance, know, yeah. And a famous female. Yeah, exactly. But this show kind of did the work leading up to this. But then it's just, just the level of execution. A plus. Yeah. Very pleased.
1: Yeah. The writing remains just to me, like every single scene, every single line just seems like- expert craftsmanship and it's just it's so rewarding i can't wait to talk to you about the next batch of episodes we'll do that on thursday amanda thank you for joining me
3: thank you for having me